Welcome and hello, Wednesday it is. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. And David Cooper is I, your host. Why am I talking so strangely? I don't know. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening and no one cares. The show where every episode's the last episode. Let's do this. Today, evolutionary biologist, science educator, Dr. Daniel K. Riskin. Dan's one of my favorite guests that we have here on the show. Usually comes on this show to talk science stories, but we very quickly get derailed. And I think that's often the most fun part of my interviews with him. So, you know the drill. Let's jump in. Let's start. Let's start, Dan. How are you? I feel like you show up for your TV appearances. You show up for your radio appearances. It's boom, 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 five minutes in, five minutes out, 30 seconds. Give me the science. No one really cares about the man behind the science, do they? Thank you. I feel that way. Sometimes I feel like I'm just a warm body to learn science from. That's how I look at you? Sure. But there is more to you. I feel like more people should look at me as a warm body to get science from, and I wish more did. And I appreciate that you're doing that. How is the warm body doing? How is the body behind the warm body? Thank you for asking. The the warm body's body's pretty good. It's bodily. It's, uh, yeah, you know, the thing about the five minutes in, five minutes out is that you don't really get to dig deep. And sometimes you touch on something and you want to go back there, but there's really no time. It doesn't lend itself to the, like, I had a conversation recently on a radio station. No need to say what radio station. News Talk 1010 Toronto. Yeah, there wasn't a need to say it, but that is the (laughs) radio station I'm talking about. Um, And it was a lovely conversation for the time that was available, but it was about rattlesnakes. And the conversation uh, was with uh, Reshmi, and I really like Reshmi, and we talked a little bit about rattlesnakes. And of course, like the thing about rattlesnakes is everybody loves to hate them and talk about how they're cold-blooded and evil, but really rattlesnakes have this deep social lives, and they're really quite interesting. And this latest study shows that uh, how long it takes them to calm down after you stress them out uh, depends on whether they're with another rattlesnake or not. So if you take a rattlesnake and you stress it out, and then you put it in a nice dark bucket and put a lid on it and leave it alone for a while. Eventually, it will calm down. Its heart rate will come down and it'll stop rattling its tail. The amount of time it takes for the rattlesnake to do that is decreased if it's with a buddy. And when I say buddy, like just a rattlesnake it's never met before. It just likes being with another snake. It likes to cuddle. In fact, they were even to get a partial improvement in its calm down rate if they put in a, like a big rope that kind of feels like a snake to cuddle up against, which is kind of like a stuffy if you're a rattlesnake. But anyway, the the thing that I didn't have time to get into is that I've sort of been obsessed for a while about how snakes perceive time because you sort of have this idea that we experience time at this rate that's sort of set by our biochemistry or something. And so like an hour feels like a pretty long time. A second feels pretty quick. Our reaction time is kind of calibrated to how fast things fall off of tables. Like, have you ever noticed that? Like, <laughs> That's the scientific calibration, the table fall method. Well, think about it. Like if I put something on the table and it falls, I have just barely enough time to catch it sometimes. But it seems to be like right at the limit of what a normal human could do. Now, if you train for it, you can catch it every time if it's like a predictable thing. But If we evolved on a planet with stronger gravity where things were falling faster, we'd probably be faster, don't you think? Interesting. So I always think like maybe hummingbirds from their time perception, because their hearts beat it, and this is a scientific fact, 10 billion times per second. It's 10 billion. Uh, No, I mean, hummingbirds, they're so quick. They flap their wings so quick. I know their hearts beat an insane amount. Maybe it's 200 beats per minute. I don't know the actual number, but it's high. I can't remember. And so I often think... You know, that three seconds where they went to the flower, moved their beak, flapped their wings, did whatever they wanted to do with the flower, flew away. Did that seem like an hour to them? To them, do they live 70, 80-year lives just like us, even though they have short lives? Right. So that's one of the interesting ideas is like if you look at how long a life lives or how long a life lasts across different organisms, bigger organisms tend to last a longer time, but they have slower heart rates and smaller organisms live 
shorter lives, but they have faster heart rates. So like, do you get a certain number of heartbeats and then you die? Is that how it works? And it turns out it's not quite calibrated that way. And bats are sort of an exception to the rule because bats live longer than they should for their size. And people have said, oh, it's because they hibernate. And so when they hibernate, they slow their heart down. And so they get a, an extension on their lifetime from that. But it's not, it's not just like your heart has a certain number of ticks and then you die. That's not really how it works. It's kind of correlated with that. Like it, and I, not caused by, but correlated with. Um, so there is a, a like a, a link there in terms of just seeing the numbers line up, but that doesn't mean that that's what's causing it. So anyway, but yeah, so that's exactly it. When you think of a, of a hummingbird, which beats its wings, I forget, is it like 20 times a second or something crazy like that? Like it's really fast how fast they beat their wings and they're modifying their wings. Each wing stroke is slightly modified to, to make it turn or do whatever. Like they're operating at a high speed, but you kind of have the sense that hummingbirds are always at that speed. And then when you look at like a sperm whale, like you kind of have a sense that they're like, like just kind of doing their own thing at some kind of whale speed. More like a tortoise. I mean, tortoises, it just sure. seems like they're chilling. They're taking the time, walking around. I'm not too worried. I got this shell to protect me from all those fast animals. I'm going to take it slow. Yeah. And if that hare tries to race me, I'm going to go slow and steady, and we'll just see how this ends. We'll just see how this ends. What is it? The scorpion tries to bite me or something? What's this? The tortoise and the frog? The frog and the scorpion? I never got that one mixed up. No. Aesop's fable is the race between a tortoise and a hare. There's no scorpion in that story. No, but there, there's the fable of the scorpion. Do you not know this one? The the scorpion? No. Okay, you got to learn this one. So let's just... I do. I do. But you're making it up. You're trolling me. It's the basis for that movie, The Driver or whatever, with that handsome Canadian... Uh, what's his name? Donald Sutherland? No. He's like the young handsome canadian ryan gosling it's the basis for the movie with ryan gosling drive hmm. the scorpion sorry and the frog so but it's a green animal like a tortoise and essentially <laughs> <laughs> your frog and tortoise they're basically the same animal okay go on that's i mean they, they're slimy they're green no one of them is slimy and the other one is a reptile so it doesn't have slimy skin at all that's what separates an amphibian from a reptile amphibians have the slimy slime that's the that's the official categorization separation whether the animal slimes or not yes okay so the scorpion goes up to the frog on the bank of a river and says hey can i hop on your back i gotta get to the other side and the frog says why the fuck would i do that you're just going to sting me. Right. And the scorpion says, no, I won't. If I sting you on this journey, we're both going to drown. I can't swim. And so the frog reluctantly agrees to take the scorpion across the river. When they get to the middle of the river, the scorpion stings the frog. And as the frog's dying from the poison and the, the scorpion's about to drown, the frog says, why did you do it? And the scorpion said, it's in my nature. And I love this fable because it's a very dark it's a very dark premise, you know? It's like, I do evil things because it's in my nature. And if you transpose it on top of people, it justifies awful things like war and this and that. So, Scorpion and the Frog. I can't believe you never heard that one. That's a good one. Okay, back to the tortoise in the hair. I totally derailed that. Yeah, which I was derailing my point that there are animals that are fast, there are animals that are slow, and we are, because we set the scale, we feel like we're in the middle, right? But if the scale had been set by a small rodent, it'd be, we would feel like one of the slow animals. And if the scale had been set by elephants, we would feel like one of the fast animals. But anyway, there's this, this scale. But here's where the snakes get interesting, is that for much of a rattlesnake's life, it is at one end of the scale. And for other parts of its life, it's at the other end of the scale. So a rattlesnake, like its hunting method is a sit and wait predator. It uses its incredibly sensitive sense of smell to find a trackway where rodents are running back and forth, like chipmunks in the forest. They tend to take the same route all the time. So a snake smells, oh, here's a little road where I can smell their little footprints. So I'm going to just hang out right here. And they sit there ready to strike in this like position, coiled up, ready to go, just pointing in the right direction, waiting for this thing to go by. And they wait there for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then in the middle of the night, some little squirrel or whatever, or middle of the day, doesn't matter, goes by that one spot and then they strike. And in, I think it's 125 milliseconds. It's very fast, less than a second, certainly. They spring out, hit the animal, bite, inject venom into it, then let go and then go back into their coiled position and wait. And if they know that they hit it right, it'll run off, it'll keep running and then it'll die. 
And then they just follow the smell to where the dead body is and then they eat it. And that's how they do it. They don't hold it because they don't want to get bitten and fight with it. And in fact, I once with uh, a guy who was working on rattlesnakes, we made a high-speed video of a rattlesnake getting fed. And so we released a mouse into its little cage and we had the rattlesnake and we watched and like it flinched and we thought it had missed it. And so we were like, oh, we didn't get it. But then we looked at the video just to see what was there. And it was so fast we hadn't been able to see it. Like both of us literally thought it hadn't done it. And it had it had sprung, bitten this mouse. The mouse in turn had like twisted around and bit the snake on the face. And then the snake had let go, the mouse had let go, and then the mouse ran as fast as it could to the other side of the cage. And then it, it was dead pretty quick after that. Like as we watched the video, the mouse was dying. And then it died. How do you live with yourself? Well, you guys got to eat. I guess. It's in my nature, man. It's in my nature. Yeah. <laughs> Every time you torture animals for science, you're like, ah, it's in my nature. That was not torture. But it's not the nicest way for a, for a mouse to go, but it's a, that's how they eat these rattlesnakes. Like if you just kill all the mice for them, then it's like, it's it, it, that's kind of taken away from the rattlesnake. I suppose it's not dark like smushing it with your hands. It's like a natural, no. it's awful, yeah. but it's a natural way for it to go. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is awful, but nature's awful. And so you do your best to like not be extra mean, but a little bit, like you, if you've got an animal that eats mice, you're going to have to feed it mice. Fair enough. And we could euthanize the mice nicely and give it to the snake. I guess we could have done that, but we were interested in the feeding mechanics, right? Um, anyway, so this snake has to have a way of sitting cool for 24 hours and it's got to have a way of doing something that where it's paying attention and reacting to things on milliseconds and so how does its consciousness balance those things does it spend periods of time where an hour feels like eh, not that long or does an hour feel like eternity because it's always going at that faster speed like or does like everything all of a sudden go into what they call bullet time in my house that's a, in legends of zelda if you're in the air and you pull back your your uh your bow to shoot at something all of a sudden everything goes into slow motion it's called bullet time and uh at least they call it bullet time. I don't think that's what they call it in Legends of Zelda. But anyway, I just I just wonder what it's like to be a snake because maybe it experiences time at different rates depending on the circumstances. How do you even answer that question? How does the snake experience time? How do we answer questions about consciousness of animals? Do we need to better understand the brain, presumably, and then x-ray it, presumably, or something like this? How would you even answer that question? Well, I mean, you could try to like get at it from like the mechanistic side and say, well, look at this is the rate at which these neurochemicals are released or whatever, or like waves of activity in the brain or something like that. But on the other hand, I, I think it would be more telling to try to come up with ways of asking the animal how long something's taken or or like getting it to estimate time. And, and so you could do it by training. So like, for example, I, this doesn't really answer your question, but it's a neat trick from animal studies is if you want to know if a Okay, a friend of mine had, was working on these vampire bats and wanted to know if vampire bats could tell the difference between one bat's voice and a different bat's voice. And so what they do is they keep playing recordings over and over of bat A coming from different speakers. And at first, the bat that they're watching looks at the speaker every time it hears a bat make a noise. But it's after a while, it's like it's the same bat every time and like making different noises, but it's the same bat every time. And so eventually it just starts to ignore it. Then the researcher changes it to a different bat's voice. And if the bat looks at the speaker when the voice changes, you know that it recognizes a difference between those two voices. And if it doesn't notice and it doesn't look at the speaker and it stays still like uninterested, interested, then you assume that it can't tell the difference between those voices. So maybe there's something like that where you can do things at different durations of time and see whether the snake can perceive those durations in time or some kind of uh, behavioral experiment like that. But I don't know how you'd even get at that. How do you filter out the bias in that experiment where the bat is just hearing a new sound and it doesn't know that it's another bat, it's just a new kind of sound? You have to change, it, it can't be the same exact sound every single time in that first one. I have to have like 20 recordings from bat A and then play them in a random order. So it keeps changing a little bit and then have a, one of them suddenly it changes to a different bat. But these are the questions you need to ask when you design the experiment. Otherwise, your result is the bats can tell the difference between sounds full stop. Not that they can tell the difference between other bats' voices. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where like the careful planning comes in. And then, and then also like... It, you, you, if you are saying it recognizes its friend versus not a friend, then you got to have multiple friends and multiple not friends. And then you got to make sure that it works every time on that bi ba basis. And so there's a lot that goes into these things, but, um, it, it's neat. Snakes cuddling. I want to, I want to, well, the first thing that came to mind when you talked about snakes 
needing to cuddle to calm down. It's very human, right? Like if you if you experience something traumatic, like I don't know, you got punched in the face, which I guess would be the equivalent of messing with a snake big time to stress it out. If you had your wife there to calm you down, to comfort you, to be like, we should go to the hospital. Oh, it doesn't look that bad. Here's an ice pack. How are you feeling? You're safe now. This awful guy named David Cooper who tried to punch you in the face, he's not a strong guy, so it didn't hurt. It just hurts your ego. She wouldn't She wouldn't say that. She'd be, she would. I don't, what, what would she say? I don't know why I'm the one punching in the face here. Yeah, I got a lot of questions. I'm the one who's good at blocking punches with my face, not punching other people's faces. Uh, <laughs> so if you ever try to punch me, you're not going to succeed because I'll block it with my face. <laughs> but it, it's very human, right? This need of others calming us down. It's kind of scary. Yeah. When you really spend a lot of time with animals, how kind of human they seem. Or I guess how animal-like we are. Yeah, I like that second way of saying it more. And, and I agree. The, the more time you spend with them, the more you realize there, there's like a whole thing going on for them. And part of that is like just having a good camera or having a good um, night vision camera or just paying attention and just sitting with it and just watching animals do their thing. And, you know, it's it's pretty easy to watch a deer and sort of the deer eats and the deer looks around like it's going to get eaten and then the deer eats. But if you find like a, a weird fly in your house and you just spend some time trying to figure out what that flies up to or, you know, it's it just, and then you miss a lot of it because it's too fast. And so then you get the high speed camera and you're like, oh yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, with the snakes. So my friend, uh, the, the guy who did this this video with, he had done a bunch of field work on snakes where he he showed that, so these snakes are, are born in dens, they hatch in dens, and then they leave the den and they don't see their siblings again until ever, probably. They just go in different directions. Um, but he was able to show that if he caught two snakes and they were siblings, and he knew this genetically because he'd taken their DNA and all that stuff, if he took two snakes and they were siblings and he put them in a cage together, they would sit closer together than if they weren't siblings. And so this suggested that they recognized each other or at least like they, they might have remembered each other as individuals or they might have just sensed something smell who knows what about that other snake that made it feel more like family um but they called it kin recognition so they could recognize their siblings versus other snakes and so yeah there's like a human side to them so my girlfriend miranda uh her father it was it's she's a product of her father's second marriage and after the first marriage she got a vasectomy so when the mom and the dad wanted to have kids they used a sperm donor okay Miranda got 23 and me. I got it for maybe five years ago, six years ago as a gift because I, I like weird interactions. I mean, this whole <laughs> art of me being on the radio, podcasting, meeting strangers, getting close with them, taking colors, all of this weird social interactions. I'm into them. But I thought, Miranda, I'll give you a gift because the potential outcome here is you match with people. It was a closed donation. So she didn't know anything about her dad uh, or potential, sorry, bi biological father, not her dad's her dad, of course. Gotcha. But- she gets on 23andMe and she matches with a few genetic, not social, but genetic half-siblings. Wow. One's in Austin, Texas. We were traveling there anyway. We had coffee with them. And I don't know, maybe they wouldn't say it, but me sitting there, I was a real fly on the wall. Even though I'm a very social, loud, yeah. I'm the obnoxious one in public demanding all the attention. I just, I was like, this is your interactions here. I'm just going to... I'm just going to sit here. You, so you basically like lit the fuse yeah. and then walked away and just watched <laughs> to see what would happen. He's a great guy. A uh, very friendly guy. They're around the same age. And I don't know if they would say this about themselves, but I could tell there was some like, I don't know, like this, there's just something similar. And I, they were very friendly. And I just, how weird that was. And you're talking about the snakes who may not remember yeah. being genetic siblings, but I, I sensed that. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it didn't actually happen. But I sense that going on for her and him, her genetic half-brother. Well, if you could sense it, I mean, you, you to do it experimentally, we got to set it up so that I set up three lunches and you don't know which of those people is the real sibling. And then we see whether you can guess which one it is. I mean, because you can get false mix, you know. Because three is a great sample size. It, you Any science can be verified <laughs> with three experiments. How long are you in Austin? Because we got to set up 30 of these. I don't know. I guess we have to do a, like a power test to see how many we need to do. And then we can't just do Miranda. We got to do like several different people who have gone through this. So it's going to be a mess. I guess the takeaway here is snakes. I mean, I don't have that 
fear of snakes. I have it with spiders. You and I have talked about this before. Yeah, you don't like spiders. Uh, it's totally irrational when people say, oh, they aren't going to hurt you. They're pretty docile, especially tarantulas. They're like very docile creatures, most of them at least. They're not like those funnel web spiders that are fast and they move quick and they strike. Tarantulas are kind of like tortoises. They're just hanging out, moving around slowly. <laughs> but to me, they're the scariest thing in the world. They should not exist. People feel that way about snakes. I don't. Uh, I don't know why they have their bad reputation. Can I tell you a thing about tarantulas just real quick while you're, while you're defending snakes? Please. So when I was in Trinidad doing my PhD on bats, we visited this farm because we needed a specific kind of bat that feeds on chicken blood. It's a white-winged vampire bat. Now, the common vampire bat is really well studied. It feeds on mammal blood, so you catch it wherever horses are getting bitten. But there's this other bat, this white-winged vampire bat that feeds on bird blood, and it feeds on chickens. And so we were working with the ministry in Trinidad that controls rabies, and they knew where there were breaks on farms and so there was this farm down in a place called Faisabad uh, where they had had their chickens fed on and so we went down there and we set up nets all around their chicken coop and we were hoping to catch some white winged vampire bats and uh, and so anyway we're we're, we get there and then it's at this beautiful farm and then the family is like, we want to show you what we grow here on the farm. So they take us for this walk and they show us the peppers that they grow here and here's a tree that has fruit and here's a place where we grow this. And I don't remember anything except I remember that on the side of this one tree, there's this huge web next to the hole. And I was like, oh, that's a, is that a tarantula in there? And they were like, yes. And then we were like, let's see if we could see it. So we got a big long stick and we started just touching around the web, just like- I'm scared right now. Like this is <laughs> giving me chills, but keep going. So we're just touching the web, like a long stick. And we're just touching the web. Please don't tell me it jumps out at the speed of light. It's gonna, that, just, oh God. Okay, go on. It's it's me and my my buddy Jerry and Jerry Jerry's a biologist. We both can hold spiders. We're totally fine with spiders. So we're touching. I hate Jerry. We're we're touching. And I hate you. <laughs> and I hate these farmers. And I burn it fire fire burn it with fire. We're touching and we're touching and like nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, oh my god! <laughs> Please don't. But but do also. I've never seen anything move this fast. Oh, no. This this trailer came up out of the hole, oh, no. went down the front, bit the stick, oh. and went back into the hole, oh, no. having from which it returned, before I could react, before I went, ah! And then both of us were screaming like little children, like... I dropped the stick. We were both like, holy smokes, because it was the betrayal of that assumption that you make and that I had always made. Why? The tarantulas are supposed to be slow. Why? But it turns out that when they need to, they can go pretty fast. Like, they really do. It was scary. Are you okay with swearing? Like I, I, I No, I, as I swore, I was like, I, no, you got to edit out that swear. Make, put a beep on it. You want me to? Will you put a beep on it? I'll bleep it. I'll bleep your swear. Okay, beep. Thanks, man. I'm not going to cut out this conversation about bleeping your swear. God, no. Because I know I swear. Yeah. Uh, but I'm like, you You got a more uh, prim, you got a more prim and proper persona. I know, but I had a lot of adrenaline right there because I was remembering that experience with the spider. I, You think you had? I was there with you. <laughs> and I have what, aphantasia? Or what, I can't picture things? Hmm. Is that what it's called, aphantasia? I think it is. Uh, Yeah, I think that's right. It's not aphasia, which is what Bruce Willis has, which is not a good situation. <laughs> uh, it, I wasn't even making a joke. It's like your brain gets messed up. But um, aphantasia is when you can't, you have no visual memory. Right. I don't have a visual memory. But yet I was there with you. No, that's good. I, I was physically feeling it in my body. It was a real, it was a real wake up call. It's funny. You were saying we look for bats wherever horses are bitten. Whenever I interview authors at the end of the interview, it's always like wherever books are sold. And I was like, you can find this book where, wherever bats, wherever horses are bitten. I'm like, you can find these. Yes, if, if your livestock are being fed upon, uh, <laughs> we will be there. It, it was really nice. We, we the, the other thing that happened there, and this story won't make you, uh, won't make you freaked out, um, is uh, this family was really appreciative that we were taking these vampire bats away because they were feeding on their chickens. And they, like, it's not a big deal for the chickens. They take a little bit of blood they bite their ankles it's and they're endangered bats they're really special um but they were really appreciative that we were doing this and so like when, when we were there we would sort of set up shop like they had kind of like a an area where they parked the cars and we kind of set up all our nets there it was kind of like a garage but it was open to the on all the sides so it was sort of like a nice little base station with lots of light and uh the, the the wife was like she made her husband go and get a fancy f dinner for us and so he went to Kentucky Fried Chicken which in Trinidad the KFC is made with good Trini spices Ooh. so like it was 
it was delicious. And so he brings it back and he's like, we got you some nice dinner. And it was a very nice gift. These, these farmers and they were, they gave it to us and we were very appreciative and we were eating it. And then she says, I have some pepper sauce made with the peppers from my farm. Would you like some? And I said, sure. And she brings out this giant green jar, like it were not jar, but like a milk jug kind of thing full of this pepper sauce. And based on the volume, like if you had a really spicy sauce, you would not put it in a thing that big. You would put it in a very small container, but it was a large container. So I assumed it was like the equivalent of salsa where you put much on. And so I put a bunch of it on my chicken. They didn't say anything. They let you just do this. No, they said it as I did it. They made a noise that made me realize what I had done. And then I was like, well, you can't throw out the chicken. No, you have to eat this, Dan. So then I took a bite of this chicken and it was so hot. It was so hot. Like I'm not a guy that likes eating hot things like to prove myself. I like a little bit of spice, but I don't Anyway, it was so hot that I just started like yelling. I'm like, oh, this is so delicious. This sauce is so good. And I just tried to make it sound like I was yelling because I was enthusiastic about it. And as far as I know, they bought it because they gave me a jar to take with me. And so I brought a jar back with me to the States where I was living. And then it lasted me for a year. I used it. I used to, I found that if you like marinated chicken with it and then cooked the chicken afterwards, it kind of killed the really intense stuff and it made for a nice flavor. So anyway. I love this farm story. I love that you crescendoed to profanity on this show with me. Have you ever crescendoed to profanity on, on the radio or television? No, I think I've got a pretty clean record. I think, and as long as you bleep that, like you said you would, I should still consider that a clean record, I think. Well, people will know you did it, but there won't be any evidence of it. Right. They'll just assume that I said frog or something. Exactly right. Tortoise, something like that. But yeah, this is why I, I love doing this with you. Earlier in our discussion about these snakes, which I think I think the takeaway here is their cold reputations are unfair. And I just directly quoted the article you sent me or the write-up you sent me. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm great at writing my own material. I talked about punching you in the face, which is very violent and not like me, but I was secretly trying to do a great transition. Poorly timed, but great transition about pain <laughs> endurance. How about that? 20 minutes later, oh. pain endurance I, I, this is why I'm the best in the biz. Yes, you are the best in the biz. And you're just trying to get me to swear again because we're like, what the heck were you doing with that transition at the wrong time? Come on, you can say hell. No, I don't say that. I never would. You won't even say hell? <laughs> Usually I try not to. You know what? We have this philosophy, like we're atheists in our house. Like we don't, we're, we're not godly people, but we don't let our kids use the Lord's name in vain because we just think it's a bad habit. Like if the kids say hell, we're like, no, no, just say heck. There's no need to really get people worked up who believe in that stuff. It's disrespectful. Don't do it. Yeah, it's exactly right. For me, blaspheming is no big deal, but I'm not going to like draw cartoons that are going to get people upset. I'm not going to use words that are going to... Because why? What's the point? I, I Why? Well, the point is to make people mad because you're a dick. That's that's why people do it. So I try not to be a dick. That's just one of my things that I try not to do. Did you second guess saying dick right there? No, dick I can do. Dick is fine. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Being a dick seems okay. Yeah. I don't know what my cutoff is. Uh, yeah, that one's okay. Would you say that one on the air? Not on... I don't think I would say that on radio. Okay. No, I don't think I'd say it on live, live radio. I don't know. It's hard to know how the filter is going to come in. But I, yeah, do you know I've never sworn on commercial radio ever? Good for you. But that just shows that you're a professional, doesn't it? I guess. I, I've had guests that have done it, and I am I focus sure like laser focus because when I was doing that show for Bell, I didn't have access to the dump button. I didn't have access to the digital delay. Yeah, the five-second delay. I know what you mean. There's a five-second delay, and you can push a button, and then it beeps them out. Exactly, and then you go to real time. I, whenever people swore on my show, I would be laser-focused. I would immediately get the attention of my tech producer, Tony, you know, Andrew, I'd say, Andrew, 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 dump button, dump button, Andrew, dump button, did you press it? Tell me you pressed it. And then, you know, he would confirm it. You don't have time for that. It's basically live on that show. Or did you have a big, long delay going? I never had. I always dump profanity, but there was some complications. For example, the affiliate stations weren't hooked up to our delay. Uh -huh. So if someone swore, it wouldn't go out on our station in Toronto where we were based out of. But in Montreal, you would hear the fuck. Uh, so it was a bit It was a bit wild. Um, yeah, no, that's um, that's intense. Have you seen? Have you ever seen the the um, where Nathan Downer was interviewing Mike Tyson on CB24? I have. It's one of my favorite moments of all time. He was a rat piece of shit. <laughs> he, Nathan Downer. That there's a reason that guy's got the the anchor desk at uh, the noon news and the six o'clock news at uh, CTV Toronto. He because he held his cool. I would have been like, what do we do? He was just like, come on, Mike. Come on, Mike. I would have held my cool from a know what to say 
perspective, but I would have lost it because I'm like, is Mike Tyson about to punch me right now? Right. That's the other thing is he he stared down Mike Tyson. He literally stared down Mike Tyson. He, Mike Tyson said, you're a rat piece of shit and stared him down. If Mike Tyson said that to me, I would run away. Well, I'd evacuate my bowels immediately <laughs> and hope that the stench would keep him away. That's one of the great interviews of all time. Uh, it was a totally out of line question i'm kind of on mike's side like it had nothing to do i disagree it was a good for a five minute you know your pr person got you an interview or you're doing a gig it wasn't like a sit down get to know mike tyson interview it was a pr interview so do you listeners who might not have the context do you think you should set it up yeah long story short mike tyson was doing some performance in toronto Behind the scenes, the way this works is your publicist for this event reaches out to every media outlet to try to get you a five-minute spot to promote your gig. And you're just supposed to ask a few questions about the gig. It's not, you're not agreeing to a sit-down, person-to-person, what's the man behind the man interview. But some interviewers, of which I am one of them, will take these publicist interviews if I think I can get an outrageous angle, and I'll take the angle and piss off the person. Because their mind is like my publicist got me this interview to promote my shit. My publicist did not get me this interview to be asked any kind of out of line question. So from like Mike Tyson's perspective, that's why he got so mad. No, he brought up the, he said something like, do you, I think Mike Tyson had said he'd support some candidate or support somebody that was trying to do something or something like that. You're way off. You're way off. Mike Tyson had just been convicted of like a sexual assault. Right. And so, so Downer's question was, do you think that it's helpful to give your support to a politician when you've just been convicted of sexual assault? I think that was the question. I thought it was, do you think it'll overshadow the performance? It doesn't matter. what. Who knows? I mean, you should play the actual clip and then show that I don't remember anything. But Do you want me to play it? Sure. All right. Welcome back. Many of you probably know that Mike Tyson, the former heavyweight champion, is in town and he met up with Mayor Rob Ford. Well, he joins us right now with his promoter, Alex. Thanks for joining us, both of you. I'll start with yourself. Uh, many are wondering, how did that happen, this meeting with, with the mayor? I have no idea. It's my fault again. <laughs> no, at the end of the day, he is the mayor of the city. Mike Tyson is here to promote the first ever performance in Canada. And when I had Sugar Ray Leonard come to Montreal to launch the book, we went to the mayor's office. We're here, it's an habit. We go see the mayor. And this is the first time probably in the history of Toronto where the mayor is bigger than the whole, the whole city. <laughs> you know, he's the biggest celebrity than anybody in the city. Everybody wants to see the mayor. And um, he's a really uh, dynamic character. Right, so did you, he read up on him? You sort of would follow no, him? No, I didn't read up on him. I watched him on television. Right. In, in the States, States, In yeah. the States, and, you know, he's a big, oh, he's a big hit in the States. He's a big hit. Now, well, some of your critics would say, you know, there's a race for mayor. We know you're a convicted rapist. This could hurt his campaign. How would you respond to that? Hey, um, I don't know who said that. You don't even want to hear say that. You know what I mean? And I don't have no comment to that, you know, because it's negative and you're being negative. And I, 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 met, I met the mayor right. and nothing they can do about it. We actually had a really good time. We, we, we talked about George Trevallo, who's a legend in your city, great man with whom Mike spent quite a bit of time yesterday talking about his life, highs and lows. It's so interesting that you come across like a nice guy, but you're really a piece of shit. Hey, with that come comment. on, come on. No, that was a piece of, fuck you, that was a piece of shit. You know, we're, on, we're, doing, we're doing live TV. Hey, I don't care, what are you going to do about it? All right, you got, a, you got a show that you're doing tonight. We are. You know, a lot of people we are. Where it comes there. raw and it's the real truth. Yeah, a lot of people will be there to see your show. Just tell us a bit about it. Um, it's a, you know, it speaks for itself. Everyone saw the show. All right. It's a Broadway production. It went to Vegas. It went to actually 28 cities in the United States. And we're really, really proud to bring it here. And we're actually going to Monaco on October 9th. We're going to be in Monte Carlo. Right. Is it nerve-wracking for you to do something like this, or is it more nervous for you to box? How does it compare? I don't know. Um, it's more nerve-wracking for me to hear talking to a rat piece of shit like oh, you. come on, Mike. No, because you're a piece of shit. All right, we're gonna we're gonna we're, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this interview. Thank you for thank you for coming in. Fuck you. <laughs> Nathan Downer is a brave man because when like lit like so many times when I was a kid, we'd have conversations like, "How much would you have to get paid to get punched in the face by Mike Tyson?" 
<laughs> like it was a conversation that we often had. And because like Mike Tyson's punch out was there and like Will Smith had a song about, I think I could beat Mike Tyson. And like he was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And like there was, like he was everywhere at one time. And he was something that I had worried about the way you worry about tarantulas. <laughs> You're just constantly worried Mike Tyson's going to pop out and punch you. Listen, it could happen. You could be doing the news on CP24 and then all of a sudden who comes in? Mike Tyson. And then all of a sudden the interview goes south because you pointed out that he's a convicted rapist. And in the interview, Nathan's like, come on, man, we're on live television. And he says, what are you going to do about it? And I'm like, if I asked Mike Tyson to modify his behavior in some way, and he responded, what are you going to do about it? That's when I would sprint. I would get the hell out of there. You you can't from where he was because I know the layout of that studio and where Nathan Downer sitting you can't get to the door without going through Mike Tyson you're stuck you're stuck like you got to go out the windows into the parking lot in the back with the car sticking out of the building that's your only route is through a window he came up two years ago Tyson or maybe it was one year ago yeah it was it was April of last year I'm just looking it up wait that's when he was pushing that was when he was helping Rob Ford get reelected remember that that's why he was there that's who he was talking about yeah we got to the bottom of it I was wrong you were right he was hmm. Promoting something, but also he met Rob Ford in the process, you know. Does it matter who was right? Does it matter? Well, no, it does because I was wrong and I can admit I was wrong. I'm not keeping track. But last year, last April, it, there's no real good audio clip. Some punk, you know, MMA fighter wannabe, you know, guy who's ripped taking steroids at the gym, isn't a real professional, whatever, has a TikTok, is not great at what he does, is on a plane and Mike Tyson is sitting in first class and he starts messing with Mike Tyson, like kind of shoving him, being like, what are you going to do? Like egging him on. And people are videotaping this. And Mike Tyson, I think, lightly punches the guy. And there was a video that leaked and everyone thought, is Mike Tyson going to be charged again? And then when the cops saw it, they're like, no, Mike Tyson. Like if you go up to someone and start shoving them and they just kind of punch you to get you away from them, which is all Mike did. He didn't destroy the guy. Uh, it was just a funny video to leak. And it, it was like the first time where Mike Tyson acted awfully in public. And I was kind of on his side. Yeah. yeah but that's, you were almost on his side before until we really dug down on the, on the Nathan Downer. See, I still think Nathan Downer's question was a good one because you're right. Uh, it was. And, and besides which it was a good one. And also I think Nathan Downer, like he, like if you've got Mike Tyson had been in the news so much at that point for this, like for his sexual assault and all this stuff. And so you can't just have him on your show to promote his, whatever that thing was yep. and use your platform without holding him at least to account. Because as a journalist, you like, you're not, you've, you've got to represent your audience. You've got to say, Hey, look, we, we all have a vested interest in this. You're not just going to use us to, to promote your thing without having to answer some hard questions. Okay. I, listen, I, what I'm doing is I'm singing the praises of the journalist and uh, I'm not singing the praises of Mike Tyson in the hopes that I never, ever, ever end up in a situation where he might punch me. Uh, punches? Oh, right. This was a segue, wasn't it? You were trying to get to uh, pain tolerance. It was. It was the perfect segue 30 minutes later. Yeah, and now we've made it 45. But nonetheless, um, this is, uh, well, there's two pain stories that I wanted to talk to you about. Do you like the first one or the second one? Which one are you after? I was thinking the first one. Yeah, yeah, the first one. The first one is the better one. Yes. Okay, that's why I put it first. It's the idea that you would endure physical pain just to learn something, even if it's not actually information that is useful. Interesting. Like, you're just curious about things and you want to know, like, like what's in that box? Probably nothing. Okay, well, I, if you open the box, I get to punch you in the arm. Are you going to look in the box? Yeah, okay, I'll look. And then you get punched in the arm. That kind of a situation, except done properly with an experiment. So the way they did this experiment is uh, people, there were a bunch of coin tosses. And with each coin toss, you could win one amount or another amount. Like you won every time, but it was, it was sometimes it was a lot and sometimes it wasn't that much. And I mean, like, couple bucks, you know, that kind of thing. Like, do I win $2 or do I win five cents? And so they would flip a coin. They say, this one's worth $2 or it's worth five cents. And they flip a coin and then they'd say, do you want to know what it was? And you say, no, don't need to. And then they do the, do it again. They did this like 90 times. And there was a thing on your arm that could uh, heat up for two seconds so that it was so hot that it hurt. It didn't burn you, but it was hot enough that it caused physical pain. And it was calibrated to your pain tolerance. So it could be small pain, medium pain, or high pain as you experience it. And people, 
uh, after a while, they were like, yeah, okay, I want to know what the result of that coin toss was. You got paid out the same amount at the end, no matter what, whether you watch them or not. But people were willing to experience pain just to find out what that role was. And they were more likely to do it if the if the offer was small pain as opposed to high pain. Okay, that makes sense. But also they were more likely to endure the pain if it was a big difference between the two sides of the coin, like it was an interesting gamble, or if the payout was very high. So if it was a lot of money, they really wanted to know if they won or not. They, the, the curiosity was enough for them to endure a little pain. Well, there's a certain joy to gambling, right? Like if I told you, wait outside the casino two hours, the result will be you'll win or lose whatever money as if you gambled. Imagine you're a slot machine player. I'll play it on your behalf. I know what you're, you give me your algorithm, I'll play it for you. Or you get to sit at the machine, hearing the noise, pulling the thing, whether you win or lose. Which one would most anyone with a kind of gambler's mindset or even people without a gambler's mindset, which one would you choose? Yeah, obviously you would go in and see the flashy lights and experience all the fun and all that stuff. And I guess the extension of that is that you're paying with your time. You're paying with your, you're paying a very small cost. You're not paying with physical pain, but you are like giving your attention to it and sitting in that room and all that stuff. So yeah, that's exactly what I think this is a reflection of is that, that, that side of us that we enjoy gambling. Interesting. I'm trying to think about things that I'm willing to do that caused me pain. Well, for one, I go to this event in the desert every year, Burning Man, and it's the most painful, physical, awful, hot UV rays. It's on an alkaline lake bed that's been dried up. So it's not sand. It's dried alkaline dust. It gets in your eyes, your nose, your fingernails, your butt, everywhere. The porta potties are like a poop sauna, Dan. Think of 110 degrees Fahrenheit sun. Bake a porta potty does it at least dry it out no it's 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 great it's the it's the worst thing you'll ever do in your life and it's amazing fun so i i mean i can get it from that regard yeah yeah or children you have kids what are you willing to endure pain for oh my gosh i went swimming with my kids yesterday and it was just like punch dad underwater day it was just like <laughs> my daughter just thinks it's so funny to like grab onto my face and neck while i'm coming up for air like she just thinks that's the funniest thing and so i have to like make sure I, if i come up for air i have to make sure i'm close to the edge so i can literally pull myself up out of the water so i can get a breath despite the weight of a child on my face uh but it's fun and if you were really rich, would you have a nanny do that or would you still do it? Oh, if I were really rich, I might. Because the outcome would be the same. I mean, maybe not because like the more time you spend with your kids. Yeah, you're supposed to spend time with them. But let's say it's just the one off. It's not going to affect their life. You're not using a nanny to raise your children. Would you rather have the nanny punch the kid, the you in, in the head or, or you for that day? Wait, I get a nanny on my face? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very different. Your wife would be upset if there was a nanny on your face. Yeah, there would. There would. There would be. <laughs> things got very complicated for Rich Dan all of a sudden. All right. So, but rewind back to it's July 17th, National Punch Your Dad in the Pool Day. Yeah, that was yesterday. And you could have someone else do it. No, of course I love the pain of my kids beating me up. I, of course. I mean, exactly. the physical pain is, you know, and, and the emotional pain and all that stuff. It's, and the other thing is like, I don't know, like we're, we're pretty fixated on trying to be happy. Like, and I, myself included, like I always think that what you should optimize is happiness, but there's even research, actually, this is one of the stories I, I sent to you is like, there's research that suggests that maybe that's not the most important thing in the world. And the research comes from uh, educators uh, at Cambridge University who are studying the development of teens. And so they get after this other variable, not not life satisfaction, which is like, how happy are you in your life right now? But something else that they call eudaimonia, which is a Greek term that kind of means um, like competence, motivation, self-esteem, the sense that you're, you have a sense of purpose, like that you're contributing to the world. And like you get it from, I don't know where, I hope that you get it from the work you do on the radio and like the interesting stuff you do in your podcast and the way you like further comedy and the way you have interesting conversations and you open up people's minds. You get me to swear. Absolutely, Dan. I, and I imagine you get that from being a science educator and, and actually doing science as well. I do. When I've discovered something new about bats, there's nothing better than that. It really does give me a sense of purpose. And when I like, nerd, when I helps people like connect the dots on something that I get that too. Nerd. So yeah, I'm a nerd. I, but that's my eudaimonia. So uh, anyway, in this uh, study, they looked at 607 kids. They had them answer a bunch of questions. And then they looked at their grades in school. And so these kids are like 14, 15 years old. And there is no correlation between how happy they are, their life satisfaction, and their grades. But there is a very strong correlation between their eudaimonia and their grades. So the kids uh, that ha are doing better in school, especially in math, they have the ma highest math scores, their eudaimonia 
outcome or scores or whatever you want to call it from the surveys are about 150% higher than the kids that are at the lowest end of the math scores and the, the other school scores. And so these educators say, you know, that shows these kids are thriving. And we think that if you look at mental health, you would also find a signal there, but they didn't in this study. They just infer that. Um, but maybe when you're raising teens and by extension, maybe when you're being a human, what really matters is your sense that you're contributing. And, you know, like this fits with like I've gone through stretches of time where I was unemployed. Like after my master's, I couldn't find a job in biology. And so I ended up being a waiter. But for a while there, before I was a waiter, I was totally unemployed. And I remember just being like so bummed, like so depressed. That was the last six months of my life. And I've been using this show to talk about it three, four interviews in a row now. So I don't need to rehash it, but I get it okay. is what I'm saying. Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. But you agree. It, it sucks. And I think that that fits. And so like if you're trying to figure out what makes a teen have a sense that they want to get up and go to school and, and try, it's that sense of purpose. And I think that that um, – anyway, so maybe happiness isn't the answer to everything. And maybe it's that sense of purpose that's more interesting. I, I think that's, uh, that's neat to think about. But the tricky part is creating that – feeling a sense of calling for that. Like I had a teacher very early on. I remember him. I don't really remember my childhood drugs, you know, whatever uh, <laughs> drugs and alcohol. But I remember my sixth grade math teacher. He just really put a lot of effort into like my schooling and my relationship with him and how he fostered kids like growth in math. That really set me up to love math and become more engaged with math. And that made me good at math. It wasn't that I had this natural knack for it or anything. Yeah. But when you start feeling like you have a sense of purpose doing a certain thing in school and you get more engaged with it over the years, you get the time behind the wheel, you become better at it. And that led me into computer science, which helped me with my career. And I really do owe everything, all the joy I got from that career, all the sense of, I don't know, self, being independent, having decent, you know, money, that kind of stuff from that grade six math teacher. And I think if the goal was just, oh, the kids should say they're happy every day. I don't know that I would have ended up very happy. You know, have you ever reached out to that teacher? Like, have you ever sent the letter? I have, but I should again. I asked him to be on my show and he said he wasn't comfortable with it. Uh-huh. That's interesting. But maybe I was just trying to fetishize or that's maybe not the right word, although I'm glad I used it. I was trying to like kind of use the relationship for a creative purpose, which is in a way, the the interview would be very authentic. We'd be talking about all these concepts, but there's something fundamentally inauthentic to having a mic in your face when you're trying to have an authentic connection. Maybe I should just try to reach out to him and to chat to him on the phone just for me kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've... <sighs> I, I think sometimes like you feel those things and you try to let the person know and in, in like a perfect world, there's a, like a connection that happens that, that really, that really like sort of seals the deal and puts a bow on it. So you feel like you've sort of closed that. Um, but I had a, I had the experience. So when I was promoting my first book and, uh, and my TV show in the States about parasites was doing really well and stuff, I managed to get an interview on, um, CBS's morning show and Charlie Rose was one of the hosts. Now this is before Charlie Rose got canceled. Um, and Charlie Rose was a very big hero to my grandfather. And so like my grandfather would often say like, Oh, Charlie Rose had this person on yesterday. It was such a good conversation. He was always talking about Charlie Rose. And so I gifted to Charlie Rose a copy of my book and I wrote a bunch of stuff in there about like how special he was to my grandpa and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is really cool. And so I gave it to him and he opened the book and he looked and he said, oh, I'm going to read this later. Thanks very much. And we never had a, a back and forth and I doubt he ever even opened it again and looked at what I'd written for him. Um, he probably gets stuff like that all the time, but... Exactly. Well, he used to. I don't know how much he gets now. He probably still gets plenty. But the the point is, yeah, he, he was very he was very gracious, but he was at the top of his game at that point and... and you know, probably too busy for it. So I never really got that closure than that bow that I was hoping for, but at least I made an attempt. It's funny. I, uh, interviewing people or working with people that your parents like look up to kind of thing. I got to experience that in a mini way. Also canceled. <laughs> hmm. Mayor John Tory. <laughs> He's not really canceled. Everybody. Yeah. Everyone says if he reran or whatever, he would have won, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my dad, like when I started interviewing him semi-regularly, I don't know, once a month, once every two months, my dad was like beside himself. And my dad thought that through me, he was now Mayor Tory's best friend. It was just funny to watch my dad be delusional and use me to brag, although, you know, still not pay attention to any of my work or anything I do. Not important. Yeah, but, that's, yeah, but still, then you like that's another connection you're trying to make and put a bow on. So it's, you know, it, it all has value. Dan, I always appreciate you showing up. And I do. Every time I interview, I think... 
he hates me. That went awful. He's never going to show up again. Without fail. There's something we did in this interview that's way worse than any other interview. And he hates me. And he hates that I led him in that direction. And he's never going to talk to you again. Nope. I think that means I like you that I feel that way every time we speak. Mm, well, great. Good. Good. Well, I, I, I like you too. And I don't feel those things. But I'm flattered that you think them. I don't know. It went better than Nathan Downer's Mike Tyson interview. You got to admit that. Yeah, but you're like, there's a reason he got his job because of that. Oh, because of the way he held himself, not that interview in particular. No, but it does. Like the thing about Nathan Downer is he's he, he just he plays it straight and neutral. Like he's just like he just reads the news and he's, he keeps a poker face on. And, you know, it's he, like a little eyebrow raise is a lot of emotion from him. Like he, he just definitely has a style. And it's just cool that when like the plane all of a sudden lost power and was like hurtling down towards the ground he was just very calmly pulling up on the yoke and just taking it back into the sky like he just it just that that sense of calm you just like to see it i just like it you know who has that sense of calm someone who isn't a rat piece of shit (laughs) exactly he is not that mike tyson was incorrect mike tyson's judge of character he thought rob ford was great and he thought nathan downer was not and i just disagree okay i love that insult i don't think i've ever heard that rat piece of shit (laughs) And then at the very end of the interview, he's like, thank you, Mike. I forget he signs off and Mike's just like, fuck you. (laughs) He just gets it in there. (laughs) Yeah, that was good. Oh, man. But he didn't get punched. He didn't get punched by Mike Tyson. And we know that because he's still alive. Yeah. Well, I'm, again, very good at blocking punches with my face. So I'm I'm confident that if Mike attacked me, that I would would prevail. Uh, Dan, as always, thank you for your time. And you're going away for a bit and you'll be back in, I don't know, a month, two weeks, three weeks, who knows where. Yeah, I'm going to go take a little time with the family so I can be drowned by my kids and punched in the face while I try to swim, among other things. And then uh, experience physical pain, emotional pain, and have a lovely time with those kids. I love them. And, uh, And then, yeah. Be back in the saddle uh, later this summer. So we'll get back at it right away. Okay. Where are you going again? BC. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. It's the British side of Columbia. Yes. The British part. Yeah. All right, Dan. Thanks for your time. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.